passage today comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you to seek your face this day. Uh, Lord, we come to you not because we are worthy, but because you are gracious. You are ever so merciful to those that seek your face. Lord, we come to you through the finished work of Christ, whose life was spotless and righteous in every way, whose obedience was perfect, whose sufferings and death atoned for the sins of all that call upon his name, uh, whose resurrection won our justification. Lord, we praise you for this glorious news, the good news of the gospel. Lord, we pray that this good news would do a work in our hearts today, that it would stir our hearts, and that the hope of, of the cross uh, would flood our hearts with love and thankfulness to you. Lord, perhaps there would be some here today that don't know you at all, and they spent their lives like all of us used to do, uh, trusting in themselves, uh, believing that we are righteous in ourselves. Lord, maybe there are some who put their hope in man-made religion or, or the idea that you will somehow grade on a curve when they stand before the Father. I pray that today you would show them your Son. God, I pray that they would be born again. Lord, for your people, I pray that you would revive our hearts, that you would do a work in all of us, and that your name would be forever praised. And we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, now for the third time in this uh, gospel, we are reminded here in our passage today that there is there's something bigger at work going on in uh, the gospel according to Luke than just these uh, episodic displays of God's grace among men. As significant as those are, uh, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. 
That's significant. For redemption to be accomplished, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men where he is going to be crucified. It's there in Jerusalem that Jesus is going to be nailed to the cross for the sins of the world, and mercy is going to triumph over judgment in the judgment of Christ in our stead as a substitute for sinners. It's at Jerusalem that uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, a new and living way is opened up so that mankind can come to God through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, and we have uh, this wonderful, uh, praiseworthy access and ability to go to the throne of grace, the very throne of God, through the person and work of Jesus Christ and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Well, you have a little preview of that in this passage. There's a foreshadowing of that in the lives of 10 individuals who experience the mercy of God. All 10 of them experience the power of God. All 10 of them have their lives transformed in many ways, and yet only one of them comes to know all that God's mercy mercy holds out uh, for sinners. Only one comes back in worship and praise and adoration and gives glory to God and, and thanksgiving to Jesus Christ. The other nine, they don't do that. They, they go about their merry way, and Jesus draws attention to that. Uh, Jesus draws attention to these differing responses between the one and the nine. He says, where are the nine? The inference there being, all is not right in this picture. We want to understand why that is. We want to understand what this passage has to teach us and why did only the one return. One thing we can be sure of as we look at this passage is that the answer to those questions lies not in their circumstances. The passage starts with 10 lepers and it ends with 10 men who are healed. Their circumstances are are the same. They start out the same way in this leprous condition. Now, leprosy in the Bible encompasses a wide range of different conditions, skin diseases. It can uh, pull in more common ailments, things like itching and rashes and boils, all the way to worst-case scenario, what uh, we know in contemporary medicine as Hansen's disease. Leprosy, in the way we typically think of it, is still uh, in the world today, and this certainly included that, and uh, that was a very severe form where whole parts of the body could become so uh, raw and, and rough and erupting that uh, extremities could slough off, your nose could fall off your body. Uh, this was such a, a difficult condition. You can read about that in Levit- Leviticus 13 and 14. But there was a whole process that leprosy required. Uh, if you uh, encountered this condition where you had to go to the priest and be examined and diagnosed and you would be declared unclean 
And then the priest would prescribe for you an appropriate amount of time of being away from the covenant community. Depending on the severity of your condition, it might mean that all of your clothing had to be burned in the fire, but you would be removed from the camp as long as that condition persisted. So you can imagine, not only was there the uh, the physical pain and torment that was associated with this kind of condition, but you also had the social and spiritual consequences that came along with the, the affliction, the shame, and the humiliation, and the isolation that you would have had to endure. If you were a leprous person, you you couldn't go into the camp. You couldn't see your family. You couldn't have uh, fellowship within the gates of the city. Uh, you didn't have uh, communion either with man or with God. You could worship God from afar, but remember, this is this is before the outpouring of of the Spirit. And, and so you can't go with others to the temple. You can't attend feasts and festivals. Other people are, are saying, other worshipers are saying, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. But you can't say that. You can't join in in those kinds of exclamations. Psalm 122, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. The pilgrim worshipers uh, would declare, but you can't say that. The leper's feet are, feet are on the outside of the gate. They're cut off. And that is why we, we see here that it was as Jesus entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers. They're on the outside. So this is more than a physical condition. When someone got close to a leper in the Bible, they were obliged by the law to cover their upper lip and to call out, unclean, unclean, so that people were not infected and contaminated, so they didn't get too close to them. This is why it was such a a remarkable thing in Matthew chapter 8, where a leper comes and he kneels at the feet of Jesus and, and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And the Bible tells us that Jesus stretches out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. You don't touch lepers. You don't get near lepers, but Jesus does. Jesus draws near, the spotless, righteous, infinitely pure Son of God draws near and he touches lepers and they become clean. That's what makes you and I different from Jesus. You and I touch the leper and we become clean. Jesus touches the leper and the leper becomes clean. So they're marginalized in, in, in many ways, socially, spiritually, it's not a surprise then to see that these 10 have formed a little bit of a colony uh, together where they can know some semblance of community, even if it's just to, to commiserate about the condition uh, that they find themselves in. They hold that in common. Their circumstances are the same. 
So it says Jesus comes into town. He's met by these 10 and it says they stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And there's no fanfare here in the text. You see that. There's no pronouncement of healing. It, it just says that when Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. So there, there was here a, a test of faith of sorts. They had not yet been healed when Jesus uttered those words. We know that because of what follows next. In the next line, it says, and as they went, they were cleansed. So Jesus sends them to be examined in accordance with the law. In the same way that the law had all of these requirements when a man became leprous, in terms of their removal from the camp, their being diagnosed as unclean, there were also lots of stipulations on what was required to be pronounced ceremonially clean, to be received back into the community of faith. And so you can only imagine the excitement on the part of these men as they, they look at their bodies and they begin to see the evidence of Christ's healing power all over their, their skin. We don't know how long they had, had suffered, but just imagine the situation they found themselves in. Their, their skin that for whoever knows how long had been raw and erupting, now it's clean. The itches and uh, the boils and the rashes and the irritations, they're all gone. The, uh, the, the discolored hair, you can read all about that in Leviticus 13. That's all as it should be. The nerves that are irritated and on edge. How many of you have ever had a pinched nerve? Well, uh, in, in worst case scenario, imagine a, a, man, a leprous man whose, whose nerves are just constantly irritated and on edge or even completely shot. Now they have feeling in their body where they didn't have feeling before. They were made whole. They had been restored. And so what does that mean? Well, it means it was time to go and make the sacrifice it was time to go and see the priest. There were actually three offerings in all. There's a guilt offering, uh, there was a sin offering, and there was a burnt offering. And the, the priest would come and he would take the blood of, of the offering and he would, he would do something a little bit strange. He would take it and he would rub it on the, 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 the skin of the right earlobe and on the thumb of the right hand and of the, the big toe uh, of the right foot, all the extremities, probably to, to symbolize the, the restitution, the, the restoration of the whole body. The whole body was made clean. So what an exciting day this must have been uh, for these men to be able to do what they for so long had longed to do, to return to the life they used to know, to go back to their families, to live inside their homes, worshiping their God. But then something happens. Something happens in this narrative. Something surprising and unexpected. Verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, 
turned back. So the law required one thing, but love required something else at that moment. Not that they are in competition in any way with one another. This man is surely going to go to the priest and he's going to be examined. But what is the most pressing thing now in his heart and mind? What is now at the top of his agenda? What's the most urgent thing after having spent however long it was in this sad, miserable condition? Is it to go to the priest and to get that certificate so that he can uh, go and resume life as usual, be uh, restored to the covenant community, uh, go and find a job? You know, many uh, men in this sort of situation, they would have lost their work when they were uh, diagnosed with leprosy and they had to go outside of the camp. No, not for this man. His chief thing, the chief thing on his agenda is not to go to the priest, but to go to Jesus. It's to bless the name of the Lord, to give thanks to God. He is gripped by the need not to go about his business and get back to life as usual, but to give God glory, to give God the glory. So brothers and sisters, Understand this, the, the change in his circumstances, which indeed they had been, it, it had been brought about by a display of God's mercy, had brought in turn a change in his priorities, a change in his desires. He was a new man, but he wasn't just a new man on the outside. He was a new man on the inside. His inward condition had changed as well. His longings, his loves, what he treasured, that had changed as well. Previously, again, what would have been chief in his mind? Imagine yourself every day sitting there. Your skin is open and raw. Your wounds are festering and bleeding. Your nerves are frazzled. People are gawking at you while they are walking past the gate. What would you have been thinking? What would you want more than anything else in that situation? It's so obvious, isn't it? It's so obvious to you. It would have been to have your circumstances change. God, why me? Why am I in this situation? It would have been to be reunited with your friends and your family, brought into fellowship with those that your ailment had separated you from. All of these men, no doubt, would have been eager to return to normal life. Now, though, uh, the very thing this man desired has been provided for. And what happens? He has a new desire. He has a new chief desire desire. What is it? To give glory to God, to give glory to the Lord. The display of God's mercy doesn't just change his circumstances. To be sure, it does that. It changes his life, but it doesn't just bring with it certain benefits. It brings a whole reorientation to his life, a whole reorientation uh, to his heart that issues forth in what? In thankfulness in gratitude unto God. God has done a work in his life, 
in his physical, corporal body, yes, but also in his heart, in the inner man. And so as he is on his way, he he sees that he's been healed, and suddenly he makes an about face. When he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks. I want you to notice here that he, he recognizes that it is through the agency of this man, Jesus Christ, that God has brought healing to his life. And so he returns to bring glory and honor to Jesus, who is more than a man. He's more than the kind of man that he may have uh, probably on many occasions found himself begging for alms from. That may have been all that he was doing uh, when when he said, Master Jesus, have mercy on me, the same way he would have cried out to any man, show mercy to me. But now he recognizes this is not just any man. Here is one worthy of praise and adoration and thanksgiving. Only then do we discover what it says at the end of verse 16. Now he was a Samaritan. Almost as if it were saying, and get this, on top of the fact that he is a leper, he's a Samaritan too. Now the Bible doesn't add any commentary to this. It doesn't tease that out for us. But it's just another way of saying not at all what you would expect here. It wasn't a Jew who came back and bowed at the feet of the promised Messiah. It wasn't an insider. It was a Samaritan. Remember what the Apostle John says about the the political, uh, social, cultural dynamics between Jews and Samaritans. He says, now Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So here is an individual who is an outsider in more than one respect. Not only is he a leper, but he's a Samaritan too. Someone that was regarded as impure and unclean by the Jews. They were a mixed bag. They didn't keep themselves pure. They they, they intermarried with, with other people, and they were frowned upon by the Jewish people. That's the one who comes and thanks the Lord Jesus. He's the one that comes to praise the name of the great physician. Dear ones, sometimes it is the ones who are the most marginalized and the most needy who have the greatest insight into not only their own unworthiness, but also the immensity of God's grace toward them. Those who are able to say, why me, O God? Why would you show me such mercy? Those who are able to uh, personally appropriate passages like Psalm chapter 8. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It is upon his return uh, that Jesus says, in effect, now, Now, wait a minute here. 
verse 17. Look there, if you will. will where uh, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? We said earlier, Jesus' question indicates that all is not right here. All is not right in this picture, and you can see the explanation here. What is it? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? That's the implication. Jesus clearly teaches us here that the appropriate response to the working of God's grace is thankfulness. It is to give praise to God, and yet nine out of ten are preoccupied with other things. It's the problem of ingratitude. One of those respectable sins uh, that we, we tolerate so much in our lives, don't we? So common to man. This is a terribly convicting passage when you really uh, get down to studying it and looking at what it is saying to our hearts. I want you to imagine you gave a gift to someone and they, they don't acknowledge it. Maybe it was just something small, but they, they don't mention it to you. Perhaps they... They forgot, but they don't thank you, not even a word. Maybe you're a little bit miffed over that. Now imagine you give them something you really put a lot of thought into. You went out of your way, in fact, to think about them as a person, uh, who they are, uh, the sorts of things that please them, the kind of person they are, what would be a blessing to them. Still no acknowledgement. No thank you. Now, imagine you get them something that costs you a great deal. You save and you sacrifice, and there was a great amount of expense associated with making that gift a reality. Not a word. No acknowledgement at all. No thank you. You see how the significance of the gift makes the ingratitude all the more noteworthy. Now go with me a step further. Imagine that the gift fits everything that we've just said. It required a great sacrifice on your part. It was incredibly costly to you. But not only was it costly to you, but you gave it to someone utterly unworthy of the gift. In fact, you gave it to an enemy. You gave it to someone you knew despised you, but you gave it to them anyway, and you did so knowing that they wouldn't be able to survive without that gift. That is the position we find ourselves in as recipients of God's free gift of grace. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were by nature, the Bible says, children of wrath. We weren't those who could cry out, Abba, Father, to the Lord. We were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, 
strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, just like this leper, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How much has the Lord done in Jesus Christ to give us so great a salvation? What price has been paid for us to think that the Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, stooped to take on flesh and blood for us, the King of glory, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature was made for a little while lower than the angels, lower than his own creation, all that he might ransom the very ones that had rebelled against him, that had sinned so grievously against him. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. How can you put words to such a gift? to something so costly, something so immense. And yet, an honest self-assessment forces us to admit that we can, we can more readily identify ourselves with the nine than we can with the one. And that's coming from those whose, whose condition at, at one point in time was infinitely worse than just being physically leprous. That's coming from the perspective of those who had sin-sick souls. Those who were spiritually lame, spiritually unclean, and yet who know the true, the fullest meaning of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We're healed. I wonder when the last time was that you just paused to say, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. I bless your name for the great work that you have done for my soul. Praise to the living God for the spilled blood of Jesus Christ that washes away my sin. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. Jesus Christ deserves our thanksgiving. He deserves every fiber of our being given over to his praise and glory. Brothers and sisters, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That tells us that God has his glory as the the telos or the, the end for which he pours out every good and gracious gift in our lives. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus, the purpose for which you know the riches of God's grace isn't primarily, fundamentally, ultimately for you. Did you know that? It's God. It's God. We are the beneficiaries, to be sure, We're the beneficiaries of every good and gracious gift, but he is the benefactor. And for that, he deserves our everlasting praise, our everlasting gratitude. What is the chief end of man? 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is why we are here. Now, what can we learn from this man's example, this one man who returned? I want to give you a few lessons on gratitude we see in this healed Samaritan leper that we can see in his life. I pray this would be an encouragement to your heart. Uh, Four observations. First, the urgency of thankfulness. The urgency of thankfulness. Our text doesn't tell us again, but I I wonder whether the other nine must have been thinking to themselves as the one uh, begged off, what in the world is he doing? What is he thinking to himself? But he leaves the company of the others and he says in his heart, there's something I have to do. There's something that must be done now. Here is a man who says to himself, God forbid that I should forget even one of his benefits to me. What shall I do then as I call them to mind? Psalm 103 and verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, and who heals your diseases. He blessed the Lord, and there was an urgency to that response. There was an immediacy to his gratitude. Ten men prayed, but only one praised. Ten men prayed to the Lord, but only one returned to give thanks. How often is that the case in our lives? How often is it the case that there is a sense of desperation and uh, importunity when you encounter some crisis in your life? You fall into a pit, uh, you find yourself in some kind of valley, and the heart begins to cry out. The heart begins to cry out to God and in desperation, and the Lord uses that, that affliction and that trouble or that distress to drive you to your knees. And there's a real sense of urgency there as you go to him. But then what about when the answer comes? Uh, what about when he hears your cry? This man is urgent both in his petitions and in his praise. You see that biblical balance between supplication and thanksgiving. He says, oh, Father, hallowed be thy name. And he lays out his request. He says, we have need of you, O God. Give us this day our daily bread. Heal me, O God, and I shall be healed. So he beseeches and he blesses. One is not there to the exclusion of the other. Most of us, I dare say, if we took an inventory of our prayer lives, would have to admit there is far more of one than there is of the other. There's far more pleading than there is praising. Maybe we would be forced to confess that it's only when we find ourselves in dire straits that we lift our voices up to God, that undesirable circumstances will get us to clear our throats, to go to the Lord in prayer, But when the answer comes, our neediness isn't so apparent and our prayer lives begin to shrivel up. We're not marked by the the spirit of gratitude we see here. Ephesians 5 and verse 20, it says, We're to give thanks always 
and for everything. To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, give thanks always and for everything. Never do we not have cause to thank the Lord. You have opportunity, in fact, a divine injunction on your life today and the circumstances you find yourself to give thanks to the Lord, always and for everything. Now, some of you might be scratching your head thinking, how can I give thanks for everything? Because there are some things that I don't find myself all too thankful for in my life. How can we do that? Because we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. That is true. And so you can praise God. You can praise him today. We always have cause to give thanks. Number two, notice the exuberance of thanksgiving. He turned back praising God with a loud voice. In the same way that his, his affliction called for a loud cry of help. His healing called for a loud cry of praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. No longer is he crying out unclean, unclean. It is praise to the living God. He has gone from cries of shame to shouts of praise. Do you ever get loud? about what God in Christ has done for you? Do you ever get a little bit excited about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done? Spurgeon makes a comment here. He says, some of our converts are very wild at times. They grow extravagant. Do not blame them. Why not indulge them? It won't hurt you. We are, all, we are all of us so very proper and orderly that we can afford to have an extravagant one among us now and then. Oh, that God would send more of that sort to wake the church up that we also might all begin to praise God with heart and voice, with soul and substance, with might and main. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's get a little bit louder about what God in Christ has done for us. Third, the humility of thanksgiving. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. This man prostrates himself. He reverences the Lord. It was a physical way of saying with his posture, I don't deserve this. I did nothing to merit this. So much so, is this the case that it would be wrong for me to come to you, uh, Lord, and, and, and look you in the eyes? He's on his knees before the Lord. He doesn't shake his hand. He, he prostrates himself before the King of glory. That's what a heart of gratitude looks like. A proud man will never be a thankful man. Pride and gratitude cannot coexist in the heart. What do you see in this man? Well, there, there's humility of heart on the one hand in his own life, and there's the exaltation and magnification of the Lord on the other. 
He must increase, I must decrease. Thomas Brooks says this, Thanksgiving is a self-denying grace. It is an uncrowning of ourselves and the creatures to set the crown upon the head of our Creator. It is the making ourselves a footstool that God may be lifted up upon his throne and ride in holy triumph over all. The humility of thanksgiving. Finally, the object of thanksgiving. What was the the orientation of this man's gratitude? What was he fixated on? Who or what did he direct his gratitude toward? It was toward the giver, wasn't it? Not the gift. The other nine, uh, the text suggests to us, were wrapped up in the gift, not the giver. And they had been healed of their malady. They they were restored. That separation that they had known from their their friends and their, their family had been overcome by Christ's touch, but they were still separated from Christ. Not so for this man. The knowledge of God's mercy in Jesus Christ drew him into relationship with the Lord Jesus. The other nine were content to obey the requirement of the law, but only one came and laid at the feet of Jesus Christ, communing with him in heartfelt devotion to him. That living relationship. What a difference there is between the two. That's what what makes this man's thanksgiving different. Were the other nine thankful? Yeah, they were thankful, but in a very different respect. This man's rejoicing was a spiritual rejoicing. It wasn't a mere outward rejoicing that, that arose from just a change in his circumstances, but a spiritual rejoicing that had at it as its object uh, the one who had shown him the mercy. His thankfulness wasn't just for the mercies but for the one from whom those mercies had shone forth. And to him alone did Jesus utter those words, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Literally, it says your faith has saved you. So there seems to be a very clear distinction here between the physical healing that the ten experienced and the greater spiritual healing only one came to know. So here stands a warning for us, especially for people like us who have seen the Lord's hand at work so much. Here is a passage that proves you can know a measure of God's mercy, you can know a measure of God's grace, and yet fail to obtain salvation. You can be like those hearers in chapter 8 who are typified by the rocky soil who when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. You can be like the demon-possessed man in chapter 11, that one who experienced Christ's delivering power. His life was like a home swept and put in order, but it had no new owner, no new occupant, no new master, 
And the Bible says the last state of that person was worse than the first. You can be numbered among those in chapter 13 who said, Lord, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will come and say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Uh, You can be someone who rubs shoulders with Jesus and are familiar with his ways, but don't know him. Don't know him personally, savingly. Uh, Romans chapter 1 says that in a way that's not dissimilar to the passage that we have looked at today, uh, the whole world has seen the power of God on display. It says there, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, beloved, I want you to listen carefully to what Paul says indicts them before the judge of all the earth. He goes on and he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Where does that leave us? You have heard of the provision that has been made in the Lord Jesus. You have seen the might of God's power and redemptive purposes clearly displayed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So go to him. Go with your spiritual leprosy, not to a priest among men, but to the great high priest, the one who alone makes intercession to the Father. Go to Jesus Christ, cry aloud to him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the one able to make you whole. Then we shall all declare, Psalm 30 and verse 11, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing, You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we give thanks to you. We give thanks to you, O God. You are worthy of praise among men. Lord, you are worthy of the highest praise and glory and honor. No one else is worthy but you. God, we come to bless your name for what you have done in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the plan of redemption. We thank you, God, most of all for the cross. God, we thank you that Jesus was obedient unto death, that he gave himself up as a willing sacrifice for us. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you. I pray that they would turn to you this day in faith and repentance, turning away from sin, putting all of their trust in Jesus' name. God, I pray for your people. I pray that you would 
Give us thankful hearts. Impress upon us all that you have done for our account. Lord, when we are tempted to wallow in self-pity and ingratitude, convict us of our sin. God, change our hearts. Do a work in us like you did in this leper. And Lord, may you be the object of all all of our thanksgiving and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.